Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that's here to tell you another tale of how Phyllis Schlafly ruined everything, even if it is mostly by coincidence this time. Welcome back to Bitchy History. This semester has been a bit of a glitchy one for me, which I'm sure you can tell by the slightly irregular posting schedule of the podcast lately. As a result, even though it's December 7th, today is the day you are getting the long-awaited Satanic Panic episode. I know it would have made more sense during spooky season, but... It's always Halloween my soul. So it should all work out fine. So, the Satanic Panic. What was it, and what does it have to do with Phyllis Schlafly? Let's start with answering the first question, and we'll get around to answering that second one in a little bit. The Satanic Panic was a widespread moral panic that had massive cultural impact in the United States between the 1970s and 1990s. There's some debate on when the Satanic Panic started and when it ended, but that's mostly because people can't decide which moral panics constituted the Satanic Panic. There were a few of them. Whether it was just the supposed satanic rituals at daycares, or if we can consider the cultural reaction to films like The Exorcist and the Amityville Horror in the 1970s, or the evangelical backlash against Harry Potter in the 1990s as well. Some might say that the satanic panic never really ended, but we'll talk about that toward the end of the episode. The most common associations we have with the satanic panic in our culture is associated with media. Before we blamed video games for school shootings, we were blaming the demonic forces of Dungeons and Dragons for encouraging teenagers to summon demons and commit acts of violence. Dungeons and Dragons. Satan's game. Your children, like it or not, are attracted in their weaker years to the occult, and a game like D&D fuels their imagination and makes them feel special while drawing them deeper and deeper into the bowels of El Diablo. This afternoon, the Dead Alewives Watchtower invites you to sit in on an actual gaming session. Observe the previously unobservable as a hidden camera takes you to the inner sanctum of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, that clip was satire, but I'll play you some actual clips of commentary about Dungeons & Dragons later that prove that that one was pretty much spot on. Dungeons & Dragons was released in 1974, and I won't give you a history of it because we're all nerds here. We know Dungeons & Dragons. But suffice to say, it was more controversial than Gary Gygax probably thought it would be. There was a variety of anti-D&D propaganda during the 1970s, but the pushback against it came in the 1980s specifically. In 1979 and 1982, two particular tragedies hit the news that were both blamed very heavily on the role-playing game. The first, in 1979, was the disappearance of James Egbert from his dorm room at Michigan State University. A private investigator was hired by his parents, who soon found out that James had been an avid player of D&D, and he began to publicly amplify police theories that his death was somehow related to the game. Only the police theory wasn't related to D&D being some sort of dark cult. They just said that students were said to play the live-action game in the steam maintenance tunnels below the campus, and they thought that Egbert had probably gone into the tunnels and either been injured or lost his way in them. But that wasn't a good headline. College student dies in steam tunnels is boring. College student vanishes after joining a bizarre and secretive cult sounds much cooler, which is what the media went with. 
Egbert was found only a few weeks later, having called the private investigator from Morgan City, Louisiana, where he had run from Michigan. Sadly, James Egbert would die of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on August 16, 1980, almost exactly a year after his story generated national attention. According to William Deere, the private investigator who would eventually publish James Egbert's story in 1984, the cause had nothing to do with D&D. Rather, it was a combination of depression, loneliness, parental pressure, drug addiction, and possibly difficulty in coming to terms with his homosexuality. Egbert's story would also, however, be turned into a 1982 made-for-TV movie titled Mazes and Monsters, starring Tom Hanks, which is a lot. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller. Until they take it too far. I propose we play Mazes and Monsters in a real setting. It won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know, I killed somebody. Mazes and monsters. This was, uh, it was not Tom Hanks's finest hour. Let's just put it that way. The same year as this highly questionable film, the suicide of Irving Pulling would bring increased negative attention to the game as well. Irving's mother, Patricia, would end up founding an organization known as BAD, with two Ds, which stood for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, and she blamed the death of her son exclusively on the game. She even filed a wrongful death lawsuit against both her son's high school principal, Robert Bracey III, holding him as responsible for what she claimed was a D&D curse that had been placed on her son's character shortly before his death, but she also filed suit against D&D's publishers. Both lawsuits were summarily dismissed because even during the satanic panic, no one was going to take my son was cursed by his high school principal during a game of D&D seriously as a lawsuit. Bad described D&D as a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divinations, and other teachings. Which is a big ask for a game that, during the 1980s, was nearly exclusively played by ostracized nerds who couldn't get laid. You'd think if they had all this real magic going on, they might have been able to get a girlfriend or get the football team to stop beating them up and tripping them in the hallway. Calm down. I played D&D in high school. I get to make these jokes. I also never got laid in high school. The football team never beat me up, though. But that was more because I was a girl than anything else. Because I know that I annoyed them enough for them to want to beat me up a few times. One of my favorite pieces of media to come out of the D&D moral panic has to be the Jack Chick track titled Dark Dungeons, which likely took heavy inspiration from the story of Irving pulling suicide and Patricia's claims about a curse. In the tract, a girl named Marcy is killed in the game, leading the dungeon master to declare, Marcy, get out of here! You're dead! You don't exist anymore! Which is a bit extreme. I've died in D&D several times. I just rolled a new character. I never got told I didn't exist anymore. This DM needs to chill. But of course, this DM has darker intentions. She pulls aside another player named Debbie to tell her that now that her cleric has been raised to the eighth level, she's ready to learn real magic. Debbie is accepted into a witch's coven. Eventually, of course, the whole thing takes a dark turn with Marcy committing suicide because it was her fault her character died and she can't face life alone. Debbie realizes how evil the game is, accepts Christ, and burns all of her occult items. 
At the end, there's a lot of biblical quotes about how being a witch or consulting with spirits is an abomination to the Lord, which, okay, maybe it is, but what does that have to do with D&D at all? But the facts of what an average D&D session actually looked like weren't important at this point. The media had latched onto a narrative that was an excellent 1980s version of clickbait. In 1985, 60 Minutes broadcast an episode which offered a hugely biased look at whether or not Dungeons & Dragons was harmful. Ed Bradley mostly focused on the story of the pullings, but he did bring on Gary Gygax at one point, mostly to ask him why he didn't add a warning to the game letting people know of the potential harmful effects it might have on players, which has vaguely the same phrasing as asking someone if they've stopped beating their wife yet. It assumes that the harm is real and has been done, rather than asking if the claim of the harm itself is a load of bullshit in the first place. But the satanic panic didn't just create fear about Dungeons and Dragons. The fear of media influencing children into witchcraft and Satanism evolved over time, well into the 1990s, where my love of fantasy novels became something rather suspect in my deeply evangelical Southern Baptist church, and I got plenty of lectures about how reading Harry Potter might give demons access to my soul. I still don't get it. The Latin in Harry Potter isn't even proper Latin. What was I going to summon with it? Bad writing and transphobia? Knowing my church, they would have been all for both of those things. But I digress. But it wasn't only the nerds who liked to cast poorly Latinized spells and read about magic swords and defeating dark lords that were impacted by this fear. It even affected the cool kids who listened to rock music on their boomboxes at lunch. Now, music has always been an area filled with moral panics. In the 1920s, it was jazz. In the 1950s, it was the birth of rock and roll. In the 1960s, it was Beatlemania. And in the 1980s, it was, again, rock music and rap. But the racial history of musical moral panics is a topic for another episode. The entire panic was because of something called backmasking, what we might call Easter eggs today in modern media, or just Taylor Swift's general communication style with fans. In modern media, an Easter egg is a hidden message, image, or feature that can be found if you watch closely or give a specific set of commands. Think about the hidden Mickeys at Disneyland, or for Doctor Who fans, the episode Blink, in which hidden messages from the Doctor are found across 17 different films, giving the protagonist the information she needs to save both herself and the Doctor. The concept of backmasking was just Easter eggs, but for music, where a recording technique is used to record a message backward onto a track that is meant to be played forward, usually for comedic or satiric effect. Now, to the credit of the evangelical religious right, which is not a sentence you'll hear me say often, backmasking was real. Bands really did encode messages into their music if you played it backwards. Here's an example from the Pink Floyd song Empty Spaces. And there are a lot of other examples. My personal favorite is the Belgian band that included a backmasked message on their 1988 album Tetra that said, you fucking asshole, play the record the normal way. And Weird Al Yankovic's Nature Trail to Hell, where the backmasked voice declares that Satan eats cheese whiz, which is obviously making fun of the satanic panic. And in fact, many heavy metal bands did actually have references to Satan in the backmasking of their albums. But it's not like those songs weren't already referencing Satan in the forward tracks as well, usually. 
1981, an English extreme metal band named Venom released the song In League with Satan, which included a backmasked message that said, Satan raised in hell, raised in hell, I'm gonna burn your soul, crush your bones, I'm gonna make you bleed, you gonna bleed for me. Which sounds more like they're threatening Satan than worshipping him, but that's just me. The metal band Slayer also included a backmasked voice that repeatedly chanted, Join us, at the start of the band's 1985 album Hell Awaits. In any case, there's dozens of real examples of backmasking, so I guess the evangelicals had a point. Except that they were rarely interested in albums that had actual backmasking. It's no fun if you find hidden satanic messages in an album from a band called Slayer on an album called Hell Awaits, after all. That's boring. Expected amateur night. If your kid is listening to Venom or Slayer or Cradle of Filth as an evangelical Christian, you already have a problem with that. No, no, the real winner would be finding messages praising Satan in otherwise completely normal secular music. Which brings us to this hilarious televangelist from 1983 who had supposedly found damning backwards messages about Satan in Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Uh, and I'll read the last verse for you because it's very interesting. It says, and as we wind on down the road, our shadows taller than our soul. There walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold. And if you listen very hard, the tune will come to you at last. When all are one and one is all, to be a rock and not to roll. If you listen to the tune. All right. Now you you're going to hard, play this backwards. Right. To get critics even, you know, or the skeptics to show them what I'm going to do. I've actually taken the exact piece of tape that you just heard it off of, and I've reverse thread the machine, and I'm going to play that exact piece of tape backwards now. Okay. okay just to, that you've not doctored it. I have it not in any doctored way. it in any way. All right. Let's let's go ahead and start. something there. All right, listen for I live with Satan. Exactly. You might want to turn it up just a little out here on the floor. I live with Satan. Listen again. Okay. I live with Satan. How many in the audience heard that? I don't know about you guys, but there is no way I could have heard that message unless I was already primed to hear it, which is why they announce them before they play the music, of course, so your mind is listening for those syllables. They do this several times throughout the rest of the video, priming you to hear certain phrases before they play them backwards on the tape. I'll post the full video on this week's Substack post if you're interested in seeing any more of that insanity. That said, even with the priming, I don't hear I live with Satan at all. And even if I had, what is that supposed to accomplish for Led Zeppelin, the supposed Satanists in this situation? Even if every fan listened to Stairway to Heaven backwards and happened to hear I live with Satan on the track, is that a spell? Will it forcibly convert them to Satanism? I have questions! I blame this period specifically for the churches I grew up in that were consistently shaming me for listening to anything that wasn't Christian music specifically. This was a real problem in evangelical churches in the 90s and early 2000s. Anything that wasn't Skillet, Reliant K, Switchfoot, Rebecca St. James, Jars of Clay, or Jennifer Knapp was seriously frowned upon. My youth pastor tried to confiscate my Linkin Park CDs once. It was a whole thing. 
Jennifer Knapp was, of course, my favorite. And then she vanished from the face of Christian music for a decade and came back from Australia as a lesbian. So really, I guess that tracks for me. In fact, the consuming of non-Christian media is still a highly debated issue within evangelical circles today. If you go online, you'll find endless videos and evangelical think pieces on how the consumption of secular media is intensely frowned upon by many evangelicals. Because even if you can't find hidden subliminal messages while playing the music backward, anything that doesn't glorify God is clearly demonic. God created music for his glory, and Satan is a fallen musician and he uses music against God's glory for his glory. But this discussion of backmasking actually leads us to another cultural factor of the satanic panic, the horror films of the 1970s. Way back in 1973, The Exorcist used the concept of playing a tape backwards to hear a message. A tape of noises from the possessed victim was discovered to contain a message when the tape was played backwards. It's a language, all right. It's English. What do you mean, English? That's English in reverse. Listen. Give us time! Letter dog! When The Exorcist was released in 1973, it created a media frenzy. Amy Chambers in the journal History of the Human Sciences writes that the media circus surrounding the film from December of 1973 when it was released all the way through 1974 led to increased reports in the press of demon possessions, reports of audience members convulsing and vomiting at screenings of the film, and moral outrage from the religious, both Protestant and Catholic, at the content of the film. The 1970s was the perfect priming ground for the height of the satanic panic in the 1980s. Movies like The Exorcist, The Omen, The Wicker Man, and Amityville Horror were all wonderful meat for the paranoia of the religious right to feed on when it came to fears about demonic influence. The parents of children in the 1970s and 1980s had been raised in the religious boom time of the 1950s, but by the 1970s, society had changed. There was growing secularism of media and music, the sexual revolution, and the civil rights movement had all taken its toll on the traditional America that these people had grown up with, and the response of the newly birthed political religious right was to push back against the secularism that was taking over American culture. Take a listen to this clip from The 700 Club. Dungeons and Dragons emphasizes black and white witchcraft. It creates a world of fear and death. Dr. Gary North says Dungeons and Dragons is the most effectively, most magnificently packaged, most profitably marketed, the most thoroughly researched introduction to the occult in man's recorded history. The books, the games, the toys, the TV all seem to have the same origin. Throughout society, a web seems to be woven to initiate and educate the unsuspecting into the world of the occult. The influence casts an alarming shadow over our culture. The potential exists to deceive a generation. This influence raises important questions. What will happen to the world if it loses its youth? What will happen to parents if they lose their children? What will happen to children if they lose their soul? But all of these cultural iterations of the satanic panic would lay the ground for one of the truly most heinous parts of the entire witch hunt, one which would see teachers and daycare workers falsely imprisoned for decades, an FBI investigation, and a really convenient boogeyman for Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum. It all starts in 1980 with the publication of Michelle Remembers, in which a Canadian psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazdar, used the now discredited practice of recovered memory therapy to make some incredibly lurid claims about the satanic ritual abuse of his patient, and later his wife, so there's some ethical issues right there, who was named Michelle Smith. 
This phase of the satanic panic would see around 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse starting in the United States in the 1980s, spreading through many parts of the world by the late 1990s, and in some cases still persisting today. Although now I'd say that the modern satanic panic should probably be renamed the drag queen story hour panic. In America, the first accusations about this start in Kern County, California. The cases involved allegations of satanic ritual abuse by a sex ring against as many as 60 children who testified that they had been abused. At least 36 people were convicted and most of them spent years in prison. 34 convictions were overturned on appeal. The other two? Well, they died in prison, or else the number of overturned convictions probably would have been a total 36. Many of those accused spent many years in prison, such as John Stoll, who spent 19 years behind bars because of accusations that were quite simply made up. No, really. Ed Sampley, one of his accusers, told the New York Times he made it up. Not out of malice, he was a little kid, but because the police coached him to make the accusation. They told me that John Stahl was a bad man and I needed to help put him in prison so he wouldn't hurt any more children, Sampley says. They said everything would be okay if I just told them something had happened. So he did. The Kern County case started a trend, and suddenly a lot of kids were remembering ritual sexual abuse. McMartin Preschool in California was the next to come under fire in 1983. In 1984, another school, a daycare, and a daycare employee were all accused. The daycare employee, Bernard Baran, was convicted in 1985 and not exonerated until 2009. His actual crime? Being openly gay and a nursery worker. The accusers had complained previously to the board of directors that they didn't want no homo around their son. Nice. Nursery schools, preschools, daycares in America, England, Canada, and even New Zealand became the site of these witch hunts. Listen into a clip from Texas Public Radio on the exoneration of Mel- Melvin Quinney 32 years after he was convicted of a crime he did not commit. With just a few strokes of a pen. Judge Christine Del Prado dismissed the case against 74-year-old Melvin Quinney giving him his good name back. Mr. Quinney, I have signed the dismissal. For decades, Melvin Quinney has been registered as a sex offender. Now the courts and his family says the abuse never took place. And I thank you, sir, for your attendance. You are now discharged from this court. This was the final courtroom step in Quinney's exoneration, a painful journey that saw him spend eight years in Texas prisons, forced him to register as a sex offender, and saw his four children pushed into the foster care system. And it was all based on a lie, a, quote, moral satanic panic that swept the country, says Innocence Project of Texas director Mike Ware. This is is a good day for justice. Quinney's now-deceased ex-wife, along with therapists, pressured his son John Parker Quinney to testify that his father molested him, that he was part of a satanic cult, and that he had witnessed children murdered. The accusations sound ridiculous now, says Ware, but it was a hysteria that swept the country. Children were being coerced by ill-guided professionals, coerced by ill-guided professionals to make these outrageous, demonstrably false accusations that have now been proven false beyond all doubt. John Parker says he resisted testifying against his father and he recanted them as an adult. But Parker physically cringed, his eyes wet with tears when an attorney with the Bear County District Attorney's Office called him a hero for fighting for his father. 
1992, the FBI would finally write a formal report completely discrediting the satanic ritual abuse scare. It was titled, Investigator's Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse, in which they conclude that, until hard evidence is obtained and corroborated, the public should not be frightened into believing that babies are being bred and eaten, that 50,000 missing children are being murdered in human sacrifices, or that Satanists are taking over Americans' daycare centers or institutions. No one can prove with absolute certainty that such activity has not occurred, but the burden of proof, however, as it would be in a criminal prosecution, is on those who claim that it has occurred. The explanation that these Satanists are too organized and law enforcement is too incompetent only goes so far in explaining the lack of evidence. For at least eight years, American law enforcement has been aggressively investigating the allegations of victims of ritual abuse. There is little or no evidence for the portion of their allegations that deals with large-scale baby conspiracies. Now, I'm not going to say that incompetence of police is impossible, but I kind of doubt it's possible on this grand a scale, too. And coming from me, that's saying something. And this, this is where I finally bring in Phyllis Schlafly. Now, I'm not going to make any broad sweeping claims of any connection between Phyllis Schlafly and the satanic sexual ritual abuse scare of the 1980s and 1990s. That would be crazy. I have no evidence of that. I will only say that it could not have come at a better time for Schlafly. During the 1970s, she had spent most of her time mobilizing anti-feminists against the Equal Rights Amendment, and she got her way. The ERA was never ratified by the required number of states to be made part of the Constitution. But was Schlafly done? Oh, oh no, she was still breathing, so she had plenty of time to commit more evil acts. Next on her agenda, childcare. In 1989, she edited a book titled, Who Will Rock the Cradle? The Battle for Control of Child Care in America, in which she and various other experts discussed all the dastardly problems with child care and all the horrible things that daycare does to children. In the book, one policy analyst, Robert Rector, actually points to the McMartin preschool case as an example of how regulated daycares can be just as bad, if not worse, than letting your family be the caretaker for a child. If the McMartin case hadn't been bullshit, I guess Rector would have had a point, but it wasn't true. I'm sure there were real cases of sexual abuse in daycares, because someone who wants to victimize children will inevitably try to put themselves in a position where they have access. But throughout the book, different authors refer to the epidemic of sexual abuse in childcare facilities, which in 1989 undoubtedly referred to many of the so-called satanic ritual abuse cases that had sprung up over and over again throughout the decade. What makes this example even more ironic is that by 1989, the McMartin preschool trial was almost over, with not a single conviction being won. All of the charges were dropped by 1990. Phyllis Schlafly was almost comically opposed to anything feminists wanted, and to quote Annabelle Duval in her paper, Testing the Limits, Radical Feminist Approaches to Childcare in the Early 70s, Duval writes that, when feminists around the United States held the Women's Strike for Equality on August 26, 1970, they had three demands, equality in educational and employment opportunities, free abortion on request, and a system of 24-hour daycare centers. Access to abortion and childcare had become a foundation for most second-wave feminist visions of equality within the home and the ability to pursue op opportunities outside it. Feminists emphasized that these changes would allow for women to have choice over such intimate and fundamental decisions as childbearing and childrearing. 
Therefore, Schlafly hated universal access to childcare because feminists liked it, and she and a cabal of religious right-wing anti-feminists were probably uncontrollably horny at the prospect of daycares being run by Satanists that sacrifice children to the Dark Lord. In the book The Mommy Myth from 2005, professors Susan Douglas and Meredith Michaels shared this about the mindset of the 1970s and 1980s about motherhood. To give you an idea, let's look briefly at the news, which has played a much more central role in policing the boundaries of motherhood than you might think. Few books have reviewed the enormously influential role the nightly news played in shaping national norms about motherhood. Revisiting Good Housekeeping or The Cosby Show makes sense, but the news? Yet it is the news that we can track especially well the trajectory of the new momism. Most people don't get or want to look at old news footage, but we looked at 30 years of stories relating to motherhood. In the 1970s, with the exception of various welfare reform proposals, there was almost nothing in the network news about motherhood, working mothers, or childcare. And when you go back and watch news footage from 1972, for example, all you see is John Chancellor at NBC in black and white reading the news with no illustrating graphics or Walter Cronkite sitting in front of a map of the world that one of the Rugrats could have drawn. That's it. But by the 1980s, the explosion in the number of working mothers, the desperate need for daycare, sci-fi level reproductive technologies, and the discovery of how widespread child abuse was, all this, this was newsworthy. At the same time, the network news shows were becoming more flashy and sensationalistic in their effort to compete with tabloid TV offerings like A Current Affair and America's Most Wanted. NBC, for example, introduced a story about daycare centers in 1984 with a beat-up Raggedy Ann doll lying limp next to a chair with the huge words, Child Abuse, scrawled next to her in what appeared to be Charles Manson's handwriting. So stories that were titillating, that could be really tarted up, uh, that were about children and sex or children and violence, well, they just got more coverage than why Senator Ropadope refused to vote for a decent daycare system. From the McMartin daycare scandal and the missing children to Susan Smith and murdering nannies and the barrage of kids in jeopardy, innocence corrupted stories made mothers feel like they had to guard their kids with the same intensity as the Secret Service guys watching the president. I don't think that any of this was necessarily intentional. What I think Douglas and Michaels discovered was nominally a coincidence. If it bleeds, it leads. And right then, stories about violence against children were the thing that bled. But it fit right into the right-wing demagoguery of the pushback against women taking their place as equals in the world that was ongoing in the 1980s. Oddly, or maybe not oddly, this same moral panic about daycare is repeating itself with anti-feminists today. Suzanne Venker, author of The Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage, which I have actually had to read as research for my PhD proposal, has an entire episode on her podcast dedicated to the ridiculous idea that daycare is perfectly harmless. Turning Point's own real Alex Clark had Dr. Erica Commissar on her podcast to talk about all the damage that daycare does to children. Also, the doctor thing is in quotes, if you can't tell. That's because that's what they call her on the description of the podcast episode, but she is, in fact, not a doctor. She has a BA in English Literature from Georgetown and a Master's in Social Work from Columbia, and a certification in Adult Psychoanalysis from the Contemporary Freudian Society, according to her LinkedIn account. Which, look, I'm not a psychoanalyst or a social worker, but anything in those fields that's still using Freud as a positive is going to give me the ick from the start. Commissar is also the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Now, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't prioritize their children. They should. You chose to have them. You need to raise them. Not just throw them to the wolves and expect them to come out all right. 
But I always find it odd how people like Commissar and Schlafly seem to focus entirely on motherhood, as if the father doesn't exist at all. I've mentioned the book Modern Woman, The Lost Sex on this podcast before, which does the same thing. It places all the responsibility for the mental health and good rearing of children on the mother. Dr. Spock did much the same thing with his early editions of Baby and Child Care, which only ever referred to the person doing the child care as the mother. Where is the father in all of this? Apparently playing golf with his buddies and beating his wife when the kids aren't looking. Hey, look, if they can make spurious accusations about Gary Gygax's motivations in creating Dungeons & Dragons, I can make them about their views on masculinity. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them, for the sake of humor. And this is where I bring it all back around to the original point of this episode, the satanic panic. I have a theory. Not a theory that's in any way ready to be an academic paper or anything, but a theory nonetheless. The satanic panic was, at its core, a backlash against feminism. Almost every core issue of the Satanic Panic had to do with children, from the games they play and the music they listen to, and how those impact their mental and spiritual health, to the dangers of putting them in childcare so women could go to work. My evidence? Well, this podcast episode. But also, let's look at the new modern rebirth of the Satanic Panic. The rhetoric from the anti-feminist movement of the 1970s and 1980s is popping up everywhere again, from every tradwife TikTok account to every anti-feminist podcast. It's even in the content from Moms for Liberty and the uproar against Drag Queen Story Hour. Hell, we've even still got the satanic ritual abuse conspiracies going on thanks to QAnon and those weirdos on the internet who think Taylor Swift was performing witchcraft on stage at the Eras Tour. And now, a sequel to The Exorcist has come out, and the 1970s and 1980s exploits of con artists like Ed and Lorraine Warren are being made into film after film with The Conjuring series, while right-wingers are busy demonizing teachers again. It's hard not to see the parallels. Just a reminder that history always comes around again, so it's important to know what happened in the past. Thank you everyone for tuning in once more, and thank you for your patience while I got my legs back under me this last couple of months. Great news, I have at least the first two months of topics for 2024 completely planned for the show, and I have a really awesome list of guests who will be coming on the show throughout the year as well. We'll be talking about everything from Anne Boleyn to the history of sex workers next year, and so, so much more, and I cannot wait for the next year of podcasting. Have a great week, and mental health permitting, I will see you back here next Thursday.